Will you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for open arms. That no matter where we are in our walk, no matter what we're experiencing, whatever season of our life, in heartache or in pain or in jubilance and celebration or wherever we're at in between, Father, we thank you that you are the God of all, that you welcome us in each and every one of these places. We thank you for who you are. Father, we lean into your words in each of those times of life, too. And we ask that here again this morning, as we come to your word, that we would hear your truth, and that you would speak into this moment, to this time, to this school, to this heart of mine, and keep changing it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of going wine tasting and touring through a couple different vineyards. And when I first pulled in and saw this beautiful scene of all these rows of vineyards, one of the things that I thought was additionally beautiful was these incredible floral bouquets at the start of every single row. And I thought, that's really beautiful. They plant, not only do they take care of all the grapes here, they actually plant roses at the front of every one of these rows. Well, little did I know that roses actually aren't just ornamental in a vineyard, that roses are actually the early warning sign of problems in a vineyard. Roses are susceptible to many of the same things, apparently, that grapevines are, so if things like aphids and mildew start showing up on roses, then that's an early indicator that chances are the vineyard is also going to be affected by the same diseases and the same sicknesses. Roses are just a little bit more vulnerable than a grapevine is, and so they're planted by the, the vineyard the vineyard caretakers as an early warning sign. I thought about this imagery as I reflected this morning on the topic of our sexuality and how, for many of us, this is one of the parts that are, like roses in a vineyard, the most vulnerable parts of who we are. In fact, for many of us, it's the place where Satan actually gets into our lives and trips us up the most. Jeff Cook says that, well, lust isn't the worst sin, it's just the most popular. And I think he's right. I mean, if we were to, if we were to all know what everybody else had done and thought in this realm of our life, every single one of us in this room stands condemned. Every single one of us has given way in different ways in our thought world or in our lives to sexual temptation, and we've got all kinds of brokenness in our lives to prove it. We carry these things with us, but I want to show you um, through the biblical story, how I think this is an indicator of so much more that goes on within us. And so what I want to do with you is read through the initial story where sin comes in and how this plays out in the early warning sign and what first gets affected, what's most vulnerable about our humanity when sin comes into the world. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What's interesting, it starts to unravel ever after in the rest of the biblical story, is from here the first lie that gets introduced. When Satan tempts Eve and tells her, you will not surely die. In fact, if you eat of this, you will become like God. And herein lies the first lie. They were already more like God. A movement towards sin pulls us away from our image-bearing The first lie was a temptation to become more like God, but that was the lie itself. They actually became further and further away from God. And so in the very next scene, when God comes looking for them, it's the sound of him walking in the garden and coming to them. And for the first time in human history, the sound of God's approach had us run in the other direction. For the first time ever, when God came looking for his people, they felt naked and ashamed. Is there any area of our life where we don't hide more from God than when it comes to the temptations or the sins of our sexuality? He was so vulnerable. This is the first part of awareness, the first place where humanity felt the entrance of sin. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Brothers and sisters, we've been in hiding ever since. And it's here in the secret and in the quiet place where Satan so often has his way with us. So often where we struggle the most and where we have the hardest time breaking chains and bondages in our life. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So that means before that, in in a perfect setting as the Garden of Eden was initially intended, they were naked and unashamed. I talked to a Dort student who graduated a number of years back. He was so sick of the sexual sin in his own mind and in his own life, he, he, kept, he kept meditating on that idea. What would it be like to actually be before God and actually feel like naked and unashamed? What if we could return to shalom? What if we could return to Eden, even if it was just in our own mind, if nowhere else? Like if we didn't have to be embarrassed about our sexuality, this part of us that God had made. And so this might sound strange, but what he said he wanted to do was he would lock himself in his room and he started praying naked. It's kind of an odd idea, but I want you to know where his heart was in the middle of us. He was so sick of the sin that had covered and hid him from God. He just wanted to be laid bare before God. God, take me back to what you intended. God, take me back to being whole again, where I don't feel ashamed of of this part of who I am anymore, because I want to be back in the place that when your voice speaks, I don't run and hide anymore. 
Maybe perhaps one of the most vulnerable prayer disciplines I've ever heard of. Odd as though it may be. Who told you that you were naked? Can you recall a time when you felt shame in your life? When you were afraid to ever tell anybody else because of what was going on? When you heard the voice of God calling and yet you ran from it because we were afraid? I've been talking all semester about why people are leaving the church and, and why it matters. And one of the reasons it's often cited is that the church has had such a hard time having a healthy theology of sex. We have a hard time talking about this incredible gift that God has given us and the places where we've felt it the worst in our own vulnerability. And so the church has articulated a voice most famous in our culture for what it is against when it comes to sexuality and had a very hard time affirming what is our yes in the middle of this. And so in his 2012 landmark book, David Kinnaman, an unchristian, surveyed all different people. And you've seen this chart at various times throughout this chapel series. Last week we looked at um, broader culture being sort of sick and tired of a church that was too involved in politics. And today we go to the number one answer on the board. The church was most known in his survey for being anti-homosexual. Now, what follows is not a message or a reflection specifically on homosexuality, but on the anti, on our inability to articulate healthy understandings of sexuality, to find out, we, we know full well what the church's no's have been, but what's the church's big yes when it comes to this part of who we are? And can we learn to articulate a voice within our culture that leads instead of reacts? That can focus on more things than just who's baking whose cakes for whose weddings? Can we start talking about our own sins and our own vulnerability? Because the truth and statistics play out consistently. And I think we've lost our ability to speak here because we're not honest. Our adultery and affair and divorce rates are the same as the broader population. Our sexual abuse, pornography rates, even terrible sins like incest are at times as high as the rest of the general population. And perhaps it's the very fact that these conversations are suppressed so often that gives the devil such a foothold. We have an inability to come back in front of the church and confess our sins to our brothers and sisters in this area of our life and instead it's governed by such shame. Jesus said there's greater rejoicing in heaven for even one sinner who repents. Could we get back to a place in the church where we have a culture where we come forward in repentance and the rest of the church matches what heaven is doing in that moment and joins into applause? Some of you already know this because you've been in my office and we've spent time together talking about these places of hurt in your life. And if you ever have, I hope you can attest to the fact that this is what I want you to hear every single time. When you come forward and you say to somebody else, I've never told another human being this, but... And then I want you to know that my next line and the next line I want from the rest of the church consistently to be, congratulations, you are closer to freedom now in this moment than you've ever been before. Sin is always the most powerful in the secret. And what our world needs right now is a church who has the ability to do its own inner work and come clean on an issue that is plaguing us. 
We have lost and abandoned our right. We have abdicated our own voice to speak authoritatively on this because we're so afraid that everybody else will see our sins and we haven't done the work inside. We're not better people. We know a Savior. That's the difference. But the problem is is we haven't let him into this part of our life. I hope if nothing else this morning, you're asking yourself this question. Is my Christianity and the Lordship of Jesus connecting with my sexuality? Is my sexuality and my Christianity, are they talking to each other at all? Is that informing this? Is it changing this? Do I have freedom? Do I have people around me that I can talk to those things about? Do I feel free to come forward in conversation about that? And if nowhere else, at least with God himself. Deborah Hirsch says we have a a disembodied understanding of our own sexuality. And in Christianity, so often it's treated by some as just a sort of category of shame and as others almost in a form of idolatry. And we haven't found this place yet in the middle. So yeah, we're going all semester sort of through this conversation about why people are leaving the church, but... Maybe sexuality actually left the church a long time ago. Or maybe the church left sexuality behind a long time ago. We've had a hard time knowing what to do with this. Early church fathers, people like Origen, castrated himself. He just wanted to end the inner turmoil and conflict and thought that that would be the answer. Augustine, after having such a philandering past, after coming to a conversion in Christ, then started to preach that sex was only for the purpose of procreation and couldn't reconcile the gaining of intimacy and sensuality and the pleasure of that with his Christianity, and so they existed in separate worlds. That's why Jeff Cook said, lust is not the worst sin, it's just only the most popular. And yet it's the one that we can't talk about, oddly enough. So can we talk about lust for a few minutes? Of all the different places and all the different ways for each one of us uniquely, where Satan tempts us, where the image of God is stolen from us in this part of our life, because that's what lust does. Lust only ever asks what's in it for me. It's the polar opposite of love, which always asks, what can I do for you? Lust is one of the most selfish things that any of us can do. It's the replacement of love in the middle of this that helps us move forward. And I need you to understand that so often when the church has had this conversation, we've talked about our sexuality like it's some sort of switch inside of you that you're supposed to just turn off. And maybe when you get married, you can flick it back on. You need to understand that that's not what's at stake. And I want to talk to you before we end, too, about what I think God is doing in this particular season and time in your life and why this is so important. What if the church is wrong? What if our general perceptions about this was wrong? What if God isn't holding out on us? What if God's actually a genius and not a killjoy? What if lust steals us away from his image-bearing and love actually pulls us towards it? It makes us a truer reflection. You see, lust is a thief and a deceiver, overwhelming the mind and pointing it toward illusions with no real ability to grant what they offer. I think each one of us has to get to the point where we realize our sexuality, this part of who I am, sex itself was created by God. It is his gift. It is his plan. 
It is his beautiful, genius mind that concocted this for his humanity. It is the genius of God that comes up with this. It's the first blessing of Scripture. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and, and subdue it. The first blessing we received as humanity was the ability to have sex. Jeff Cook says the earliest Christians objected to lust not because it produces ecstasy, but because it produces third-rate ecstasy. You see, lust is a deceiver and a liar. It's the junk food of love. It's the quick, cheap, caloric intake that can't sustain us for the long haul. And so when we all feel our impulses and we don't have a community around us to support us that we feel like we can be honest with, we indulge ourselves or even our own little thought world or our behaviors or our patterns in something that can't satisfy what we're truly longing for. You see, sex even itself comes from the Latin word secure, which means to sever and to separate. Our sexual longings are a representation of the things that we long for the most in the deepest part of who we are. And that sometimes sex isn't even just about sex. Sex is about a longing to know and to be known. And that means that some of the most sexually actualized people in the world are people who are single. And so a full embodiment and living into our sexuality can even be done in the midst of singleness. But we need a richer and a more robust understanding of what it means to be a sexual being and an image bearer of God all at the same time. Rebecca Conan-Dyke DeYoung in her great book, Glittering Vices, says it like this. Lust takes something that was designed for more than pleasure and makes it mere pleasure. All sins are a bastardization of God's good gifts. They take what God intended and they give us a cheaper version to sell it like the first voice that spoke to Eve already in the garden, tempting her with a cheaper version. And it can't satisfy. And it won't. And you and I already know this. Trojan Condoms did a research a few years back. They surveyed all across the country trying to figure out um, the different places in the country where people are the most sexually active, where they have the most partners, um, kind of an advertising campaign for Trojan. Trojan found that San Francisco was the most sexually active city in North America. Um, surprise. And, <laughs> and the average respondent from the city of San, Fr San Francisco attested to having 30-plus different sexual partners. What Trojan wasn't planning on finding out in that survey is that later on when they asked a follow-up question about who was the most sexually satisfied people, San Francisco came in 30th. That actually the demographic of people that came in attesting to the greatest levels of satisfaction in their sex life were 60 to 70-year-old women who had only ever been with one partner. Like, it's almost like God knew what he was doing. <laughs> what if we need more of God in that place in our life because he wants to lead us to life? What if God isn't holding out on you? What if God isn't a killjoy? What if he's a genius? What if he made you and knows all of your longings and all of your desires and then laid out all of his laws for us so that we could experience fulfillment? So when Jesus says, I've come that you would have life and have it to the full, that he's talking about this part of our being too. Jesus himself, who is tempted in every way like us, surely experienced some of these same things as well. A fully actualized person. Understanding your pain. Understanding your struggle. 
understanding your temptations, inviting you to come to him with all of them. And so in the middle of that, can we talk about the elephant in the room? Can we talk about the biggest struggle that we're facing right now? I led a men's retreat back in British Columbia this past weekend. 75 men or so gathered in a room, and during worship what I did is I I took a chair and I put it up front, and after giving a message on transformation, I asked anybody who wanted to be changed, come and sit in this chair. We went for an hour and a half, two hours of different people coming forward, sharing their stories, men crying, breaking down, going forward. Finally, the youngest man in the room at 19 years old comes forward, sits down, says, I've only ever told two other people with this, but I've been struggling with the temptation of pornography for so long. And I falter, and it gets me. And I said, oh, phew, I had like this hunch that one person here struggled with sexual temptation, so I'm glad that we found him. Statistically speaking, and these statistics normally don't lie, 70% of all of the men in this room have intentionally sought out pornography more than once in the past 30 days. 30 plus percentage, 30 plus percent of all the women in this room have sought out pornography More than once in the last 30 days. These statistics run across the board, Christian and non-Christian alike. See, Christians aren't exempt from being sexual beings. But it's often the secrecy and the shame that has its most powerful hold on us. And so we get stuck with the junk food rather than the real deal. We get stuck being cheated by the evil one instead of getting what God actually has in mind for all of us. Luke Gilkerson, who works for Covenant Eyes, says the real problem with porn isn't that it shows us too much sex, but that it doesn't show us enough. It cannot possibly give us the experience of real intimacy. The problem with, the por- with porn isn't that it's too graphic and it's too explicit. The problem is that it's too cheap. It takes another human being, an image bearer of God, and puts them in front of you and strips them of their humanity and then strips you of their humanity and reduces all of our sexuality to simply an experience of sensuality. But the biblical definition of our sexuality is sensuality and intimacy and love and life and connectivity and family and procreation and, and, and it's such a richer and fuller definition. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop being cheated from what God wants for us. We need to be able to have open and honest conversations in a world around us, in a cultural moment that is just crying out for this right now. See, the mask is starting to get taken off. And we're starting to see all around us. The Harvey Weinstein stories, the Anthony Weiner stories, the, the, story, the Al Franken stories, the stories of prominent people in Hollywood and in government and the leaders all over the place whose masks are getting taken off and we're realizing how broken everybody is as if we didn't already know. But Church of Jesus Christ, this is what I want for us in this moment. This is an opportunity for us to be able to speak honestly into something that we've been silenced on for way too long. What an opportunity in the midst of so much pain to point to the resurrection, to the life-giving message of Christ, to point towards hope, to give hope at a time when we need it so badly. And one of the other things that the Me Too movement has done, and men, I'm going to pick on all of us for a minute, 
is revealed and laid bare for us all of the ways that we specifically have objectified and mistreated women in our thoughts and in our words, in our joking, in the way that we talk about them. And we simply as the church have to have to call one another out and do better at this. If we're going to reclaim this for what it's supposed to be, it's going to have to be elevating and raising the bar on our own behavior and on our own language. Women simply deserve better than that. Chuck DeGroat in a recent post on the 12 put it like this, women are tired of living in a world of immature boys led by a president who confesses that when it comes to assaulting women, he just can't help himself. I'm not putting this quote up on the board to try to make some political comment. Sexual temptation and sin is both blue and red. It runs across the board and it runs through every single one of us. We live in a very, very broken world. And we just simply have to be able to find ways with one another to reach for more than that. See, because this isn't just a cultural thing. It's a church thing too. And now we see the hashtag church too propping up all over the place. My question for you is, will we be the people in the generation that starts to change this? We stand at a cultural moment where we have the opportunity to be more sexually honest than anybody has gone before. Maybe the pulling back of the mask is actually a gift. Where we can start to openly and honestly deal with this and become healthy in a new way. So what are you supposed to do through adolescence in this waiting game? A youth pastor in Pella challenged me a little while back and said, isn't this incredibly difficult and did God set us up to fail? That we start to sexually come of age in our early teens and we don't get married culturally until 10, 12, 15 years later. The average first American male now gets married at age 28, or sorry, 30, the average American female at 28. That's a long time. Many people will go past their sexual peak before they are even allowed biblically to be sexually active. What do you do with that? And so his question was, then did God set us up to fail? It's a fair question. But I want you to know that God, throughout biblical history, has always taught us that there's tremendous work that gets done in the waiting. That we shouldn't have everything that we want the moment we want it. That we have to grow into our desires. I did a sex ed class with sixth graders recently. I told them it's kind of like a puppy, right? They got to grow into their ears and their feet that they're all stumbling along in the midst of before they can really run and look coordinated. When we become coordinated in our sexuality, it's kind of because we come of age first sexually and then we need to grow into this later on. And even in the middle, in this weird in-between time between where you are and full adulthood and the day you get married and biblically you're allowed to be sexually active in a different way. What about this? My friends, God is working in the waiting. And he's teaching us self-control. He's teaching us self-knowledge and self-awareness. And let me tell you, after celebrating getting to officiate over 100 weddings and watching couples go through this in all different stages, the ones who get some of this stuff figured out have the greatest likelihood of having wonderful, wonderful love relationships as time goes on. Now, I know that that hasn't been the case for all of us, and I know that if we were to listen to each other's stories in this room, that there would be a whole lot of hurt. I know that there are those of us in this room who have hurt others. 
And I know that there are those of us in this room who have been hurt by others. Some of you in ways that you've never ever told anybody else. And I want you to know that the grace of God lives here. And that it's often in our greatest vulnerability that the greatest resurrections come. And if there's an early warning sign in the midst of this, in a place of vulnerability for you, where you've been hurt, where you've hurt, where you struggle, I want you to know that God is here too. And your Christianity and your sexuality need to come back together. God didn't apologize for this when he put it on page one of the Bible. And if you're struggling in any way, shape, or form in this area of your life, you need to know there is a God who is standing with open arms going like this. When sin came in and his voice spoke, we started to hide. When his voice is speaking to you now, can you run towards it? Can you receive his love so you too can learn how to love in the same way? Do not hide. Do not run. Do not be ashamed. He came to give you life and give it to the full, and his promise still stands. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the good, amazing gift of our sexuality. For what we know about it and even for what we don't. That you would have created something like this to create intimacy between your people. That collectively amongst us as your people, you would call some of us to singleness. You would call some of us to being married. And in the middle of this, as a community, you've given us the ability to create life like you did. This incredible part of our image bearing. God, we pray that we would revere it as you revere it. That you would teach us and lead us to a place where we can have a leading voice in our culture. To be able to teach about your truth and the, and the healing and the wholeness and the restoration that is ours in Christ Jesus because of what he accomplished for us. And Father, for all of us here this morning who are struggling in different ways, because we have been hurt or because we have hurt, because we are stuck in temptation or we are stuck in patterns of sin, Father, I pray that this moment might be used by your Holy Spirit to break down new walls, create new opportunities, and begin a process of resurrection. And if there's somebody here who needs to speak to somebody else, if they need to tell their story for the first time, if they need to let go and bring it into the light so they can experience healing, or for all of us who need to do that. God, grant us courage and give us prompts of your Holy Spirit so that we would not let the evil one have his way here. Lord, we want to declare freedom over this part of who we are. And I thank you for a, a room full of students who are trying to find your will in their life, in every part of who they are. And I pray, too, that they welcome your work here. Lord Jesus, have your way with every part of who we are so you can lead us to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.